The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. For a strategic relationship, we should think about it as a, a series of critical engagements. And this is just one in, in a chain. I would hope to see a lot more coming out of the Biden administration. Uh, I'm not 100% certain, again, that Ukraine is going to get the attention it needs, Uh, not because of some sort of altruistic view of Ukraine and making Ukraine uh, better and prosperous, but frankly, because uh, we don't necessarily fully uh, appraise the value of Ukraine to U.S. national security. I'm Bryce Clem, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. During the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban's subsequent takeover of the country, some observers were quick to question the U.S.'s security commitments to various countries around the world. These commentators pointed to countries like Ukraine and Taiwan that have defense relationships with the United States and said that if the U.S. could not be dependable in Afghanistan, those countries could not rely on the U.S. to meet its security commitments. To help make sense of it all, I spoke with experts on Ukraine Taiwan, Israel, South Korea, and Japan. We talked about how each country's relationship to the U.S. has evolved under President Biden, and how each country perceives the U.S.'s security commitment in light of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 14th, U.S. Security Commitments Post-Afghanistan Withdrawal. And now, here's my conversation with Alexander Vinman, a retired lieutenant colonel who served in the U.S. Army and is currently the Pritzker Military Fellow at Lawfare. He was most recently the director for Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Russia on the White House's National Security Council. Alex, thanks so much for joining me. Before we get into the reaction to Afghanistan and President Biden and President Zelensky's meeting, give us a framework to start. How has the Biden administration's Ukraine policy differed from the previous administration? The the major first of all, thanks Bryce for having me on and give me an opportunity to talk about this. But the major uh, a point of differentiation uh, thus far is coherence. Um, what we had under the Trump administration is we had a entirety of, of the interagency, the U.S. government, uh, marching in lockstep on a policy of greater cooperation, uh, greater engagement, military security, uh, economic cooperation, and uh, it was disconnected from where the chief executive wanted to go and not over a policy disagreement, not that we received any clear policy guidance of where we wanted to go, but uh, it was incoherence because of the fact that there was a domestic political consideration that was driving the president in one direction, diametrically opposed to you know, what where the, the U.S. government thought it was based on the president's own guidance and the national security strategy of, of 2017. Um, we don't have a national security strategy yet from the Biden administration, but what we do have is a clear sense of coherence from the chief executive on, on through the rest of uh, government. And, um, and we'll see what the policy nuances are, but that's a major, major uh, benefit that the the uh, rest of government is not working, um, uh, you know, not at odds. I guess at odds would would imply that there's there was direction, but uh, in in a different direction than the chief executive. So let's move to Afghanistan. Ukraine fought alongside the U.S. in Afghanistan, and Ukraine was even helping uh, to evacuate Afghan citizens and some of its personnel uh, right up until the withdrawal. But I'm curious, sort of before the current moment that we're in. And, and throughout the war in Afghanistan, what was the Ukrainian perception of their security commitment in Afghanistan? They they had uh, less of any 
clear national security considerations for their participation in Afghanistan. What they did have is an overriding objective of continuing to be a good partner to the U.S. and to the West. Uh, they have had an ongoing mission since the early 2000s of uh, contributing troops and capabilities to U.S. missions in the Middle East. Um, in Iraq, in uh, a very significant kind of way, uh, probably one of the definitely one of the largest contributors uh, of forces and capabilities to uh, Iraq and then continuing on through Afghanistan. And they just wanted to indicate that, you know, this is where they wanted to be. They wanted to be part of uh, um, moving towards the Euro-Atlantic alliance and indicate that they're willing to put some skin in the game. Uh, I think that's one of the major things. The other thing is that there's, you know, not not a negligible, negligible economic concern in that Ukraine does have a, a relatively capable heavy lift, um, military heavy lift capability, and they've contributed that uh, both to to U.S., U.N., uh, and NATO missions, but also to um, you know, I guess, generate some revenues through through their lift capabilities, and we saw that play out in the waning days of um, the uh, Afghan war with Ukrainians contributing. Um, air platforms for evacuations. So you were in Ukraine as the withdrawal from Afghanistan was unfolding. What was that like? Uh, I had to, to sit through a, a number of appointed conversations about the value of Ukraine as a partner. Um, the The general thought process was something along the lines of, if the U.S. had contributed a mere fraction, you know, a half of a percent to Ukraine uh, that it did to the 20 years in Afghanistan, uh, Ukraine would be a completely different nation, uh, you know, and this wouldn't be, you know, U.S. support to a, a, a to a, a Kabul government that would just keeping it afloat. This would be, a, uh, you know, building capacity, building an operab operability towards a, a very capable partnership uh, with the U.S. and the West. And so I had to sit through some of those, uh, com uh, some of that commentary. And it's totally understandable that you would, you know, you, you'd get that perspective. The Ukrainians believe, and they probably are justified in believing that they're on the front lines defending the Euro-Atlantic um, alliance against Russian aggression. They're spilling blood, they're spending treasure, and they're looking for some support. And uh, that, that support was going to uh, what seemed like a futile effort in Afghanistan billions and billions of dollars uh, wasted in terms of equipment, you know, trillions of dollars wasted in terms of just a national treasure on Afghanistan that could have been better used uh, in towards key partnerships uh, like Ukraine. So that was, that was definitely one of the issues. The other one was certainly some questions about whether the U S had the staying power was, was going to be a good enduring partner for uh, Ukraine. And that one's a, a difficult question to answer. I think, you know, in my view, one of the ways to explain this to the, to the uh, Ukrainians is that the U.S. had been involved in 20 years of, uh, of war in, in Afghanistan and could have stayed there for another 20 years, uh, but frankly decided that it could sh shift its priorities, shift its capabilities, shift its att attention to more critical relationships. And that's one of the ways I tried to explain it to the Ukrainians that, you know, this is not necessarily a bad thing. This is not a uh, commentary on whether the U.S. has the the endurance, the will to be um, a partner to Ukraine, but that it's now shifting to the the real threats of nation state actors, the rising tide of authoritarianism, and Ukraine being a bulwark against the, the rising tide of authoritarianism uh, is likely to benefit in some ways. Some of that hope uh, that may come across as a bit of a hope or wishful thinking, but I think that's in fact you know the the argument that the policymakers like myself have been making for a long time that commitments in um, the Middle East to fighting to fighting non-state actors to fighting um, radical Islamic terrorism um, was was in certain ways distracting from much more kind of significant existential threats like the rising uh, authoritarianism and backsliding in democracy. So here in the U.S., a lot of commentators were quick to say that Ukraine is now just 
questioning the U.S.'s security commitment and unreliable. And you touched on it a bit there, but in your view, is that coverage accurate or sort of overblown? I think it's overblown. I think uh, there is a there is a much more well considered undercurrent to to this question of whether the U.S. and the West are uh, in fact strong partners of Ukraine. It has less to do with Afghanistan and more to do with the fact that Ukraine has been involved in a war with Russia for seven or eight years. And while it's received a fairly significant amount of support, uh, you know, somewhere on the order of four, over $4 billion, I think it might be even closer to six uh, in support that in fact, um, you know, that's been a relatively modest investment in Ukraine, the largest uh, country in Europe. And um, based on the latter couple of years, the Trump administration, the opening months of the Biden administration, it's unclear if the U if the U.S. has the uh, strategic view on partnering with Ukraine over the long term. So it's it's bigger, you know. Frankly, it's bigger than just Afghanistan. Afghanistan, you know, is something to kind of hang an argument onto, but it's it's not re really about Afghanistan. It's a it's a, a about a broader pattern of. Um, of the relationship, bilateral relationship and multilateral relationship between Ukraine and the West. Were there any uh, domestic Ukrainian political players that were sort of using the, the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan to, to bash against the Zelensky administration? Certainly they were, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I would have thought there would be more of this. And uh, yes, while in fact there were, uh, there were folk, plenty of folks that were critical of Zelensky um, you know, for their own, uh, for, for maybe legitimate reasons for political uh, gain. Uh, I'm not going to basically kind of, I guess, uh, weigh in on that. Um, I thought it was interesting that they had a very, very um, strong conviction about a positive engagement between Zelensky and uh, President Biden in, in the meeting that they had on the, on the first. Um, and it almost right, so seemed... It almost seemed like, uh, you know, politics ended at Ukraine's borders. Right. Right. So let's get into that uh, September 1st meeting where President Biden met with President Zelensky. What was each side trying to get out of that meeting? Uh, I think Ukra the Ukraine, huh, the Ukraine, uh, I think the Ukrainians, um, we don't we don't say the Ukraine. Uh, it's, it's considered a pejorative, but Ukraine had considered... Um, Ukraine had considered really kind of magnifying the uh, the relationship to a strategic partnership, something that we've rhetorically um, we've rhetorically been on point with the Ukrainians on, but has in fact lacked some substance. There's a strategic partnership commission that's uh, that's going to be uh, reconvened in uh, the fall. That's going to add some lines of effort to this uh, this uh, strategic partnership. It's going to be economic. It's going to be um, security and defense oriented. It's going to be energy oriented. And uh, I think that the Biden administration has made some fairly significant, um, you know, has made some fairly well-considered significant uh, contributions to, the, to this partnership moving forward. But it more than almost certainly fell well shy of where the Ukrainians would want to be either with regards to economic support or with the kinds of declarations they were looking for, they wanted more clarity on uh, Ukraine and NATO. They wanted more clarity on, um, you know, a, a much more elevated uh, strategic relationship. I think they got a little bit of that. They there was a uh, new category of um, security cooperation with the Department of Defense that'll uh, ease some of their concerns. Uh, there were some additional resources applied, but even so, I think it, it's still relatively modest. Um, I would say the Ukrainians walked away with less than they wanted. Uh, and in fact, I think the timing of this meeting wasn't particularly helpful. I mean, the, the administration was bogged down uh, with Afghanistan and uh, wrapping up that war and, and the uh, humanitarian crisis uh, in, in the Middle East, in, in Afghanistan, and um, was probably distracted from really even more thoughtfully considering the importance of Ukraine as a strategic partner. So when they released a joint statement afterwards, contained a lot of things, some of which you've already mentioned, including 60 million in, in defense uh, equipment. Was there anything in that statement that surprised you or anything that was not noticeably absent? 
you know, it was, I was happy to see that statement because the, the, um, you know, the photo op, the, uh, engagement in the Oval Office was less than satisfying. It didn't really receive a lot of coverage, but sometimes, and and that's what Zelensky was uh, in, in a lot of ways here for. Uh, he did get that. He, he'll get, the, he'll get enough to kind of play it up in the, in the Ukrainian press. Um, but he did get some substance on the lines of effort that I'd, I've been referring to earlier. And sometimes we see these things as kind of the beginning and end points. Um, we shouldn't, which she, for a strategic relationship, we should think about it as a, a series of critical engagements. And this is just one in, in a chain. Uh, I would hope to see a lot more coming out of the Biden administration. Uh, I'm not 100% certain, again, that Ukraine is going to get the attention it needs, uh, not because of some sort of altruistic view of U- Ukraine and making Ukraine uh, better and prosperous, but frankly, because uh, we don't necessarily fully uh, appraise the value of Ukraine to U.S. national security. And um, that's something that I'm writing about for my uh, doctoral thesis. So it's an, it's, it's definitely a topic that I'm going to explore over the coming months uh, in, in significant detail. Natan Sachs is the director of Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. His work focuses on Israeli foreign policy and U.S.-Israeli relations, among other subjects. I was wondering if you could just give us a broad overview of how the Biden administration's approach to Israel has differed from the Trump administration's thus far. The Biden administration is very different from uh, the Trump administration, of course, almost every regard, and that includes Israel. Israel under Netanyahu had a very close relationship with Trump, and Trump, for a variety of reasons, especially domestic ones uh, in his own party, tried to shower Israel with every favor he could imagine. And so Israel really got things diplomatically and otherwise that it had barely dreamt of getting from the United States previously. With Biden, there's a return to a much more normal, quote unquote, relationship that existed before for many years. There's deep disagreement on the Palestinian issue, but on that issue, the countries, both of them, both administrations don't see it as a priority uh, at the moment. And on the Iran issue, especially there, there are deep differences in opinion on what the end game should be, or let me just run that back. Sorry. On Iran, there are big differences on the tactics and especially on the JCPOA, but there is fundamental agreement on sort of the end game of preventing a nuclear weapons in the hands of Iran, as was just articulated by President Biden during the visit of Prime Minister Bennett. So on these issues, there's a much more return to normalcy, whereas under Trump, there was almost an identity of of both approaches uh, and actual actions by the Trump administration. So let's get to Afghanistan. What was the reaction in the Israeli government as the withdrawal from Afghanistan unfolded? Well, as you'd expect, for the most part, the Israeli government did not comment. Uh, There was one exception of Foreign Minister Lapid commenting, perhaps out of turn, Uh, saying that the idea was correct, although the implementation was bad. But the Israelis in general, in in and outside of government, were watching very closely. They were, of course, concerned by the images. They felt some of them echoed experiences that Israel had, in particular in Lebanon, both in the attempt to re-engineer another country, which Israel tried in 1982 and failed to do, and also in the images of a very messy withdrawal in 2000, where Israel withdrew its forces from southern Lebanon in what became a very messy affair and one that shed some bad light on Israel, but was seen by most Israelis at the end of the day as a necessary step. And that, there was a sort of echo of Israeli experiences. The broader question for Israelis, of course, was what does this mean for America, American actions, in particular on the Iranian front? And there the questions were much heavier. So before we get into that, um... President Biden met with Prime Minister Bennett as the withdrawal was unfolding. I think you referenced it earlier. How was that meeting received in the Israeli press? As you can imagine, uh, Israel is very self-centered, as most countries are. And so Israelis um, were rather taken aback by the fact that the meeting was postponed, which I think to everyone in Washington seems strange. The meeting was supposed to take place uh, just about the same time as the major bombing attack at the airport in Kabul. And so the White House postponed the meeting for the following day. Since it was a Friday, it meant that Prime Minister Bennett and his um, entourage stayed in D.C. until the end of the Jewish Sabbath. He does not fly on Sabbath. 
In Israel, there were many who thought that this, from the Biden administration, was almost disrespectful to Bennett, although it's absurd, of course, given the magnitude of what was happening. There were some who commented that Trump would not have done that to Netanyahu. So the focus for the Israeli press was really mostly on the Israeli side of things, not understanding sufficiently how major the Afghanistan question was in the United States versus uh, one more diplomatic meeting. Um, there was, of course, other aspects to it. The, the meeting itself was taken generally as positive. The words were positive between them. And in particular, Biden reiterating a commitment that Iran would not achieve nuclear weapons ever, as far as the United States was concerned. In Israel, this was seen as an upgrade from Biden previously saying it wouldn't happen under his watch, which some thought maybe suggested he would leave it open for the future. Here was, here was more unequivocal, and in that regard, it was considered a success. So a lot of groups like Hezbollah, Hamas, and Iran, or in Iran's case, despite having you know fought the Taliban in the past, celebrated the Taliban's victory. Is there any sense in Israel that these groups feel newly emboldened, or is this just sort of typical bluster? A bit of both. It's mostly bluster, of course. Uh, but there are those in Israel who certainly look at this as a victory for radical Islamists, although they come in s- such very different forms. And there is a concern that it would show, again, weakness of the West and weakness especially of the United States. So there is some of that, and there are certainly those who try to tie Taliban to Hamas, to Hezbollah. Uh, that can be overstated, although there is some similarity in some ways, certainly theocratic um, organizations with common animosity towards the West, but the differences between them are, are profound. So to what extent has the situation in Afghanistan affected Israeli domestic politics, if at all? Have, have any sides really been using it as a, as a talking point to push any policies that they previously advocated for? I'm curious. This doesn't affect Israeli domestic policy in any major way. Afghanistan, as you can imagine, was mostly uh, an Afghan and American story, and of course of NATO allies. But Israel is not a member of NATO, and Israel never fought in Afghanistan. And in that regard, it's it's someone else's problem quite far away. Israelis in general tend to view world affairs at that level as beyond their purview, and therefore something they don't really spend much political time on. Of course, many were watching very closely and cared a lot about it, in particular because of the affinity with the United States, but it was a second order interest. In that regard, it doesn't affect much. It was used uh, as uh, a bit of an ax between the Netanyahu and the Bennett camps, or the Netanyahu and the anti-Netanyahu camp, arguing that Bennett's treatment in Washington is something that Netanyahu would not have received. But uh, but that's a no, that was a temporary thing, and I wouldn't pay too much attention to it. Where it matters more and is fundamentally very important is on the question of American resolve and American interest in intervention in the world. And since this withdrawal from Afghanistan was really not just a Biden idea, it was a Trump deal then implemented by Biden, it seems to represent a very broad consensus in the United States, even if temporarily or not temporarily, there's a lot of dissatisfaction in the United States about the withdrawal. In that regard, it matters a lot to American allies and certainly matters to Israel. The question of how involved the United States is willing to be, what kind of appetite does the American public have for foreign interventions, that is something the Israelis care about. Not because they want the Americans to intervene in the Middle East, they don't, but they do very much want the threat, the possibility of American intervention to be a credible one, to be one that America could use, particularly vis-a-vis Iran, but more generally as a world hegemon that the Israel is very interested in the in America being. It seems to Israelis, and I think probably correctly, that Americans are wary of this. They do not want to be the world policeman anymore. And this is true, as I said, of Trump and of Biden together. And in that sense, it's much stronger. So how has, has this affected U.S. credibility, especially with regards to something like the Iranian nuclear deal in the eyes of the Israeli government? The credibility is, of course, very hard to measure. But in Israel, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the closing of that chapter was taken as a dramatic move and is seen as one more nail in the coffin in the idea that the United States would be hyperactive around the world. That's especially important with regarding Iran. When President Biden spoke about Iran never acquiring a nuclear weapon, the bottom line for that is that if diplomacy fails to work, the United States might indeed use force to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. 
But in Israel, it's taken now almost for granted that the United States will not be interested in any new Middle Eastern war. That's an obvious and probably correct uh, assumption. And the withdrawal from Afghanistan is seen as one more proof of this point. In this regard, um, I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the timing of it damaged U.S. credibility, certainly in the Israeli eyes and probably in the Iranian eyes as well. It's not to suggest that the Israelis wanted the Americans to strike Iran. They did not. What they wanted is the American threat of a strike to be credible. And if that credibility is weakened, then the diplomatic hand that the United States, the United States has is also weakened. Dr. Victor Cha is a senior vice president and Korea chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He is also a professor and the DS Song KF chair in the Department of Government at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. South Korea fought alongside the U.S. in Afghanistan. And I'm curious, how was the war perceived in South Korea before the withdrawal? Um, I think it was initially perceived as something that the United States had to do after 9-11. As you said, the South Koreans did send um, forces overall in the global war on terror. Um, They were the uh, uh, second or third largest ground contingent in Iraq. Uh, They sent peacekeepers to Afghanistan, even though they had a horrific incident with regard to um, the Taliban taking some of their citizens hostage. Um, So overall, I thought they were generally supportive of it uh, and engaged somewhat, um, uh, but certainly not on the level of like Australia or some of the other allied countries. So you wrote a a piece recently about why the U.S. presence in South Korea is so different from from the war in Afghanistan. And I was wondering if you could just sort of lay out your main argument. Sure. Um, you know, I think the, the, the big difference between Afghanistan and South Korea is that um, if you look at the president's rationale for pulling out of Afghanistan, uh, you know, they were one, they were very deeply held beliefs on the part of Biden that go back to the 2009 debate in the Obama administration about surging in Afghanistan, of which he was strongly opposed to it. He didn't have confidence in the people on the ground who the United States was working or working with, and he didn't have confidence that they could build the government that, that the United States could rely on. Um, these were both facts on the grounds and beliefs that you know Biden held. And if you try to transfer that to Korea, none of those things really transfer or translate in the sense that, you know, I don't think that Biden Biden has concerns about whether the South Korean government is a government that they can work with. Um, they, um, they see a real threat with regard to North Korea and more longer term with regard uh, to China. Um, and um, we saw in the May 21 summit between President Moon and President Biden that this alliance was providing as many benefits to the United States in terms of key supply chain issues and climate change and green energy as they were providing benefits to South Korea. So it qualitatively, it's just a completely different type of relationship. And this is also putting aside the fact that there's, you know, a mutual defense treaty between these two countries. So I had heard some murmurs in Korea watching Afghanistan, whether you know, they should be worried. And, and my sense was that they that they shouldn't, that this was a pretty strong commitment that was held by the Biden administration and the United States overall. In some reporting I've seen, some politicians in Korea have been calling for the government to, to take wartime, to take over wartime operational control of their troops. I was wondering if you could just for our listeners explain what that authority is why it's so important and how that conversation has been been playing out in light of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So it's actually a legacy of the Korean War because when the United States decided to intervene in the Korean War after the North Korean invasion in June of 1950, the president of South Korea at the time in a simple letter basically handed over operational control of all of South Korea's combat troops to to the U.S. U.N. commander. Um, It was an extraordinary ceding of sovereignty in a time of war. Um, But then what what emerged out of the war was not just an alliance, but one of the most integrated command structures of any that the United States has. It's more integrated than NATO. It's more integrated than Japan in the sense that it is a single combined command 
with a U.S. commander um, and a deputy, a, U, a U.S. commander and a deputy Korean commander. Um, but as time has passed, you know, the Korean military is far more modernized, far more capable than they were in 1950. Uh, peacetime operational control was handed over um, um, uh, decades ago. Uh, and now the big question is at what point wartime operational control will be handed back over to uh, South Korea. What that would mean for the United States is it would be one of the only, it would be the only place in the world where you would have integrated command where the commander would be a, the commander would be a Korean and the deputy commander would be a U.S. commander. This, they would sort of switch switch uh, positions. Um, but there are uh, a number of requirements that must be met. Uh, in the in the U.S. and ROC estimation, having to do with intelligence capabilities and other sorts of things, before both sides would be comfortable with handing over wartime operational control uh, to uh, to South Korea, and you know this is this is an issue that's gone through. It, it initially started during the George W. Bush administration on a finite timeline. Rumsfeld wanted to set a finite timeline, a date certain by which this would happen. Uh, but then, you know, a whole series of North Korean provocations, including not insignificantly their first nuclear weapons test, um, caused this to be delayed, uh, not set by a hard date, but done by what's called conditions-based approach. And conditions meaning both the external security environment and uh, the, you know, sort of full spectrum readiness of the ROK forces to be able to handle operational control. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So I want to move to refugees. South Korea is taking in hundreds of, of Afghan citizens, and President Moon said that the country had a moral responsibility to help those fleeing Taliban rule. Those refugees have been given an interesting designation as, quote, person, persons of special merit. I was wondering if you could walk us through what that what that means. So, uh, you know, I, this, I think, is an example of uh, South Korea giving back um, to the international community. Uh, it, you know, it was uh, not within my lifetime, but certainly with my, within the previous generation of mine where, you know, Korea emerged from the ravages of war and was a country poorer than Haiti, um, was a net donor recipient. Um, and now, you know, clearly it's an economy much greater, much bigger than Haiti. It gives aid to Haiti now. And it's now one of the few OECD countries that's not just a net donor provider, but is also increasing their overseas development assistance budget. So um, Koreans are not unfamiliar with the concept of public goods and giving back to the and doing things that give back to the international community. And I think this is one example of that. You know, they were, as I said earlier, they were they have been involved in Afghanistan. They have been sending peacekeepers there for, for some time. Um, and they are trying to do their part to absorb some of these folks that are leaving um, and that will be given special 
status. I'm not. I, I haven't looked closely enough to see what that special status entails, uh, whether it entails um, you know permanent residency and working permits and things of that nature. But I'm sure that there are elements of this that will certainly make it easier for these refugees to either um, settle in Korea or to Korea be a good uh, way station before transitioning to, to someplace else. The Republic of Korea also took a lot of asylum seekers from Yemen a few years ago, and that sparked somewhat of a, a backlash within the country. Have, have any of those debates reemerged? Uh, I'm sure that they will in some pockets of the, uh, of the society. I'm sure they will, especially because this is an election year in Korea. The single five-year term of the president ends uh, and there'll be an election in March. So it's entirely possible that you know issues like this could come up and be politicized pretty quickly. Um, um, but you know, at the same time, though, I think you know, right now we have a progressive government in Korea. You know, will a conservative government, a conservative candidate, really try to attack um, the the uh, sitting government and the sit and the ruling party for taking in these refugees? I think it's a it, it would be a tough one. It would be a very delicate one uh, that could that could backfire on them. I think the other aspect of Afghanistan for uh, the Korean population, when I think about the U.S. commitment, is that part of the reason for pulling out of Afghanistan is so that the United States could devote more attention and resources to the broader strategic challenge from China. So in a sense, um, it's not a question of the U.S. abandoning its commitments in Asia. It's, it's really laying the groundwork for it to double down on its commitments to Asia, including allies like Korea. Um, the only place where I think the Afghanistan issue might impact um, the way Koreans think negatively um, has to do with the fact that this has completely absorbed the attention of all the top policymakers in the White House, in the State Department. And for Koreans, that means that there's less high-level attention being devoted to their number one security problem, which is North Korea. Uh, and so I think my my sense is when I talk to officials and opinion leaders in Korea is that they're comfortable with, with the fact that the U.S. commitment will not be to Korea will not be impaired by what has happened in Afghanistan. But they are concerned about the level of attention that has been given to the issue and how it may detract from uh, the ability to work with the Biden administration on trying to make progress on North Korean nuclear weapons or a Korean Peninsula peace process. The really big issue for the U.S.-Korea alliance strategically going forward is China and what choices Korea is going to make on China. Because the United States obviously is the key security partner for Korea, but China is the key economic partner. Even as Korea tries to uh, reduce its dependency on China, it's still the key economic partner. And so this means very difficult choices for Korea, you know, between these two, whether you're talking about 5G or supply chains or free and open Indo-Pacific or uh, One Belt, One Road, BRI. You know, these are very difficult choices for that many U.S. allies have to make, but in particular for Korea, because they are the only one of those U.S. allies that are physically connected to China. Uh, on the mainland uh, of Asia. So in the end, um, that is the much longer term and more significant strategic issue for the Korean Peninsula going forward. Julian Koo is the Maurice A. Dean Distinguished Professor in Constitutional Law and Professor of Law at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. Among other subjects, his writing for Lawfare includes research on Taiwan. Julian, thank you so much for joining me. Let's jump right in. A few weeks ago, during the withdrawal from Afghanistan, President Biden made a comment in an ABC interview that necessitated some clarification from the administration. When he was asked if America was still a reliable partner for countries like Taiwan, he said, quote, we made a sacred commitment to Article 5 that if, in fact, anyone were to invade or take action against our NATO allies, we would respond. Same with Japan, same with South Korea, same with Taiwan. It's not even comparable to talk about that, end quote. That caused the administration to clarify that it hadn't changed its policy on Taiwan because in the quote, President Biden placed Taiwan alongside countries that the U.S. has rock solid defense agreement 
defense agreements with. So on, on that note, I want to start with a very basic question. What is the U.S. security relationship to Taiwan? Uh, that's a great question. So actually, um, sometimes I wonder if President Biden's living in the 70s. So until 1979, the U.S. had exactly the same defense commitment to Taiwan that it had with South Korea and Japan. It was a mutual defense treaty uh, ratified by the Senate. And famously in 1979, the United States abrogated that treaty, uh, President Carter, um, in order to reestablish full diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China, what we call China, um, Communist China. And so since then, uh, the U.S. has had no um, treaty obligation uh, to defend Taiwan. But what's happened is a series of actions by Congress and statements by presidents over the years have uh, stated a policy of U.S. Uh, commitment to support Taiwan's ability to defend itself. And I think that's the easiest way to describe it. So, um, but without making explicit commitment like it did before 1979 to come to the aid of Taiwan in the same way that it would for Japan or South Korea or NATO. Uh, so against that background, um, the Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act, which uh, has a series of policy statements that um, you know, again, do not commit the United States to defend Taiwan against an invasion but by China, but it does say that, one, the U.S. is obligated to sell weapons to help Taiwan defend itself, and two, that would it would treat any sort of um, uh, military uh, action as a, uh, a grave concern, or, and it would take it very seriously, leaving open the possibility the United States would um, intervene militarily uh, to uh, defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. Um, so that's sort of the legal framework, which is why it's a little different and why Biden's statement was a little startling because from a legal perspective, it really is um, not the same commitment um, as it is uh, to South Korea, Japan, and NATO. So let's move to the reaction to the withdrawal from Afghanistan. The PRC has been gloating over the American withdrawal and trying to tell Taiwan that the U.S. is not a reliable partner. What has the reaction been in Taiwan, both to the withdrawal and to that narrative? So uh, there was some initial reaction from the leadership um, immediately to try to distinguish itself from uh, from the situation in Afghanistan, um, but also to address one of their own domestic problems. So first, uh, they're essentially being trolled by Chinese state media, right? Chinese government didn't actually say anything officially about this, but Chinese state media ran, went with it and really, like you pointed out, gloated about how this really um, suggests the U.S. Has very, um, is not a reliable partner. And, um, and really, you know, and I think this is something that obviously everyone in Taiwan watching news very closely can see the average people. The government came out, uh, the Chinese, Taiwanese government came out pretty early on and the leadership said, look, there's a big difference here. And I think they really focused on one aspect of Afghanistan that we, you know, we focus on here in the It's like that Taiwan cannot react the same way the Afghan National Army did. The Taiwanese Army, uh, uh, which is officially called the Republic of China Army, um, and the Taiwanese people um, should take the lesson that uh, the real problem here uh, in Afghanistan is that the Afghan uh, government, uh, the pre-Taliban government, did not defend itself in a, uh, in a, once the U.S. withdrew its support or, or weakened its support, and that this really had a huge impact on their ability to hold off the Taliban. And so you saw a statement from the Prime Minister of Taiwan and then the Foreign uh, Minister of Taiwan both making rather explicit statements saying that, you know, we are not afraid to die for Taiwan. We should all be committed to fighting for ourselves. No one will come help us, is paraphrasing if we are not willing to fight for ourselves. And I think that was one of the big lessons that the Taiwanese government leadership wanted to take away from Afghanistan to try to broadcast to their own people. Because frankly, that is one of the big challenges in Taiwan. There isn't the same kind of urgency in Taiwan about the Chinese military threat that you might imagine. Um, the, the defense spending is, is relatively low compared to GDP. There's not a, a lot of enthusiasm in the, among the general population for surfing the military. And there is a perception that the Taiwanese people would not actually fight uh, aggressively to defend themselves. And so I think the government in Taiwan took this as an opportunity to try to push and, and, and kind of teach a lesson or, or create a lesson that, 
we need to take our defending ourselves more seriously. And this is something we need to do. They also propose increasing defense spending modestly, but again, increasing on the theme that we must, you know, we must help ourselves first before anyone will come to help us. Um, having said that, they were careful not to say anything one way or the other about the U.S. commitment, um, which obviously doesn't look great. Um, but I think that was the main sort of storyline within Taiwan that was pushed by the leadership of the Taiwanese government. So I was wondering if you could give us sort of a, a breakdown of the domestic politics that are playing out with regards to, to what you just said. The two main opposition parties in Taiwan, as I understand it, are the KMT, and the Democratic Progressive Party. Give us a sense of how each of those parties are sort of using the withdrawal to make their own political points. Yes, everyone's being a little cagey on this issue because it's very sensitive. Um, like I said, the DPP, Democrat Progressive Party, is uh, currently in the government. They hold a majority of the legislature and uh, the presidency. And so they dominate the political scene. And they recently won re-election um, just uh, in 2020 over a KMT candidate. And that they have traditionally been um, very uh, you know, open to independence, in some cases originated in a pro-Taiwan independence movement, but have governed cautiously because they didn't want to provoke a Chinese military action. So they haven't formally declared independence, but, um, but they have always had a strong sympathy toward eventually uh, declaring formal independence uh, for Taiwan in a variety of ways that are, you know, the, that they, but, but the interesting thing about the DPP is that although they have a very strong pro-independence tradition history, uh, they're also typically very uh, skeptical about the military in Taiwan. And the reason for that is that the military in Taiwan, we call the Republic of China government, is the successor to the old uh, government that, that governed on the mainland until 1949, was defeated by the communists, retreated to Taiwan, and established itself as the, as the government, and really was used as a way to you know, to control Taiwan and suppress dissent for many years until martial law was lifted in the 1980s. And so the, the, the opposition parties in Taiwan have historic suspicion of the military. And the military in Taiwan historically has been uh, associated with the KMT. A lot of their members have been, you know, um, at least affiliated with or politically sympathetic to the KMT and intertwined with the KMT, which is currently opposition party. But until you know, the 2000s was the dominant uh, political party in, in Taiwan, in fact, suppressed all opposition. So, so that's why the military has never, and so the military has now, you know, um, always been associated with the KMT, but the KMT, ironically, has been in more and more years sim sympathetic to unification, peaceful unification with China, not submitting to communism or anything, but seeking some sort of accommodation. And so they also have a lower incentive to really bolster the military in the sense that their members tend to be affiliated with the military historically, um, but they're not interested in provoking China and they're looking for accommodations with China because they feel like the current government has worsened relations economically and politically and has endangered Taiwan. And so um, it leaves the military without sort of a huge amount of natural political support. Um, I'll just say one other thing, like, like South Korea, Taiwan has a national service requirement, a draft, effectively, um, for all adult uh, males, right? Um, but it's uh, unlike, in, uh, well, like South Korea, I guess, and other countries, it's extremely unpopular, but maybe much more unpopular even than in, in, in some of these other countries. Um, even though the threat is, is quite real, I think, um, the reputation of the military has been weakened in Taiwan because uh, so many people have gone into their... It's very short service. It's varied from three months to a year or longer sometimes. Um, but the training has been poor. Um, the treatment uh, by the uh, of the draftees or the people providing service has been poor. Um, a few years ago, um, one of the draftees was actually died during training um, due to a, a alleged abuse by the military. So that creates the uproar, which then has created made the military even more unpopular as an institution. So it has a reputation within the general public as being kind of incompetent and ineffective and sometimes kind of abusive. Um, and so it just doesn't have a natural constituency, um, even though it is presumably the, you know, the first line of defense against the Chinese invasion. So that's why there's a, there's been a challenge for the DPP government to try to, you know, bolster confidence in the military, which has historically been associated with the other party and which frankly has not been, does not have a great tradition as an effective institution generally. 
So President Biden said in his speech on August 31st that part of the reason that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was happening is because the U.S. needed to focus its resources on things like the U.S.'s security comp. <clears throat> Sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. <clears throat> President Biden even said in his speech on August 31st that the withdrawal was happening because the U.S. needed to focus its resources on things like the U.S.'s competition with China and sort of reshift its 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 refocus its resources. Have have there been any voices in Taiwan that have acknowledged that point? Uh, yeah, they notice they carefully uh, notice everything, and I think that um, you know the, the media in Taiwan is really good at covering. Uh, every little nuance out of the U.S. government, especially the president. Um, during the Trump years, you can imagine how complicated that was. Um, but uh, but they do so, really, for, for their own self-interest. Um, and, uh, yes, I think they uh, they noticed that, and I think that's one way to sort of, um, you know, they're not, they're, uh, the Chinese government is not going to criticize U.S. government over Afghanistan uh, in any way. And, and I think this is a lifeline for them to say this is actually, they're not saying this openly, but I think it's a way for them to signal that this isn't necessarily a bad thing uh, for Taiwan because it allows the U.S. government to focus its resources on, on, on work, refocus its attention on Asia. Now, having said that, uh, the Taiwanese are aware, just like everyone else, uh, that the U.S. has been saying this since President Obama said this back in the you know his first term. And the rebalance has never quite been pulled off. But I think if it's going to happen, it's rebalancing from the Middle East to Asia has never really pulled off in the way people thought it would. But um, but I think this is certainly um, one way to sort of see this in a way that's positive uh, for for Taiwan and for Asia. Um, but I remember, I, and so I think that's that's a good thing. Uh, that's something that they can take to heart. Um, but I, there's no lie, look, the, the images in Afghanistan and the stories and the, the abandonment none, and the, the out-treatment of the Afghan allies, none of that makes anyone in Taiwan feel better about the situation. Um, but I think that they do think that they're very different than Afghanistan. So I don't think that there's a huge sort of wave of, uh, you know, fear of U.S. abandonment, in part because, in a, you know, the other thing to think about is Taiwan has never had that kind of um, direct guarantee that the Afghans thought they had, maybe, because they had U.S. troops literally on the ground, or that the South Koreans have, because the U.S. troops are literally on the ground. Um, Taiwan has always kind of lived in a murkier uh, zone of, U.S. sort of protection anyways. And so I think it's a little easier for them to sort of brush off Afghanistan as not really the same situation as what they're facing. Right, right. And this year, China has been conducting live fire drills near Taiwan. And at the same time, the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard combined have conducted eight transits through the Taiwan Strait in 2021 alone. As we look to the future, do you think this is the new status quo, or is there any any change on the horizon? I think we're heading in. The, this is the new status quo politically in Taiwan. Um, broadly speaking, it was called the China skeptical position. There used to be a group in Taiwan politically that was thought that some sort of peaceful accommodation could be reached that would stabilize and, and neutralize the military threat. And I think um, there's just very little belief in that, even among the KMT opposition party that historically embraced that view. So within Taiwan, I think there's, um, the only question is whether they maintain the current cautious status quo or get more radical <laughs> and think about a more formal move toward independence. Um, whereas, um, but I think we're, we're likely to see the status quo continue. Um, unless there's a change within China and the Chinese government's approach. The biggest change in the region, I think, is the U.S. has been, you know, I think conducting Taiwan Strait transits, which they've done before but never used to make a big deal out of and um, has now become part of the playbook um, of the U.S. Navy to show its commitment and interest in Taiwan. But the biggest shift the U.S. has made since Biden came in is to really work hard to make Taiwan not just a U.S.-China-Taiwan issue, but uh, an issue for Japan, an issue for Korea, an issue for uh, NATO, an issue for Europe, and in particular, zeroing in and trying to uh, get a fuller commitment that Japan would support the U.S. in any defense of Taiwan. And Japan's definitely moving in that direction. And in some ways, I might argue they've been pulling the U.S. in that direction as well, because the Japanese government is 
remarkably hawkish, at least compared to the past, uh, again, on China these days. And, and, they're, and they see Taiwan as a real um, flashpoint and, and a real security threat to the Japanese home islands. And so with the Japanese government starting to take that view, um, that really does, if that continues, that would really create a much more, um, you know, a really sort of confrontational situation, but also in some ways provide more security for Japan and uh, for Taiwan, because before you never had Japan give this kind of explicit or at least close to explicit commitment to, to be supportive of Taiwan and the U.S. in the event of a Chinese action. So I think that's that's something to really keep an eye on to see if Japan continues on that path. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. Dr. Sheila Smith is the John E. Moreau Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She is also an expert in Japanese politics and foreign policy. She is the author of Japan Rearmed, The Politics of Military Power, Intimate Rivals, Japanese Domestic Politics, and a Rising China. Before the withdrawal, what was Japan's relationship to the war in Afghanistan? So Japan, as you may know, was a major supporter of the war on terror, but in the global context. So Japan worked very closely with other partners, United States, NATO, other partners, United Nations primarily, on post-conflict Afghanistan. So it hosted the Tokyo Conference on Afghanistan for many years in the wake of 9-11. It provided, I think, in the first five years after the conflict there, about 5 to $6 billion in aid to Afghanistan, and that ranged from agricultural support to infrastructure support, right? Um, So it did this through the UN. It did it in collaboration with other allies and partners of the United States. Um, And I think, you know, the the larger counterterrorism project, if we can call it that, Japan didn't have a major combat role, of course, on the ground, um, but it did support the U.S. and the U.S. coalition of of, uh, forces that were designed to counter the use of Afghanistan as a base for terrorist organizations. So let's move to the withdrawal. What has the reaction been in the Japanese government and then sort of the, if you could give us the rough contours of the public discourse uh, around the withdrawal? Sure. So the most immediate thing, of course, is Japan had an embassy in Kabul. Uh, There were 12 embassy officials on the ground there was very close coordination between the Japanese and U.S. governments on their safety and how to extract them safely. And there was uh, security assistance by the United States to ensure that those people got out safely. They were carried out to Qatar by the Royal Air Force, the United, the, the British uh, forces on the ground. So that's one piece. That was the immediate uh, response to the withdrawal. The larger uh, Japanese response was to consider whether or not to send the Japanese self-defense forces, the Japanese Air Force, in to help uh, remaining Japanese nationals, but also other allies uh, in the coalition and perhaps uh, Afghan uh, nationals associated with the embassy, with JICA, which is the Japanese aid organization. And so the Japanese sent three aircraft there. Um, On the day of the terrorist attack at the airport, there were up to about 500 people. The Japanese government was in the midst of evacuating to the airport to uh, leave Afghanistan. That did not happen, obviously, because of the terrorist attack at the airport. So that that mission had to be truncated and uh, the Japanese Air Force then withdrew to Qatar like other allies of the United States. So... One of the reasons that we're having this podcast is because there's been a lot of commentary that that all these U.S. allies are, are questioning the U.S.'s security commitment at this point. Have there been any voices, either politicians or in the Japanese media, that have seriously questioned the U.S. security commitment? And if so, what has the response been to that? So, as you know, U.S.-Japan... Uh, The United States and Japan have a security treaty that has Article 5 provisions like we do with NATO, like we do with other allies. Uh, And the security, the Article 5 provisions provide for U.S. assistance to help in the defense of Japan. I I think there's very little government, um, there's very little sense within the Japanese strategic community in the government that this withdrawal from Afghanistan impinges upon American willingness to uphold its Article 5 commitments to Japan. I think the larger conversation, of course, is one of um, what does this do? What does the Afghan uh, withdrawal do to perceptions of American strength? 
perceptions of American reliability. And so I don't think you have a problem of the Japanese government worried about the United States' reliability, um, but you do have this larger question about, well, what does this mean in the region, especially the Indo-Pacific with where the United States and Japan are working quite closely to make sure that the United States remains engaged in thinking about regional stability and, of course, countering China. There has been a little bit inside the Beltway here in Washington, D.C., of course, there's been a, a bit of a focus uh, by some who think that the Afghan withdrawal has weakened our reliability on issues such as helping Taiwan. Um, in other words, not our treaty allies, but others who might need our support in the future. I don't think that there's a large sense of, of concern about this in, in Japan. Uh, outside the government, of course, you have the same debates we're having here in the United States, which is really about where America can be uh, focused in the future in terms of deterring aggression. And I think there's a great hope that in the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific, the United States will now concentrate its efforts. So let's let's zoom in on, on Taiwan for a second. How has Japan's relationship with Taiwan developed in, in recent years? So Taiwan is, of course, very close physically to Japan. It is 120 kilometers, which is, a, you know, about, you know, 100 miles, less than 100 miles from the southwestern islands of Japan. Uh, fishermen from both Taiwan and, and Japan fish in the same waters. Uh, trade uh, is very close regionally uh, or sub-regionally between Taiwan and those uh, sub-southwestern Japanese islands and, and the southern islands of the Japanese home islands. I think there's a very close relationship with, between the Japanese and Taiwanese people. So you see, for example, when Japan had its earthquake in 2011, Taiwan was the first country to offer assistance in, in large uh, amount of economic assistance at the time. So you have an, an affinity, a, a sort of popular affinity between the two. I think the worry today uh, in the Japanese government, of course, is the rising Chinese pressure across the straits. Uh, there's an increased presence of the People's Liberation uh, Army's Navy and Air Forces across those straits and around Taiwan and in the vicinity of Japan's southwestern islands. So there's concern here. Uh, about the military role uh, in the region and what China's intentions are. And of course, like Americans, Japanese are also worried about just how far Beijing may go in imposing its will on Taiwan. We J Japanese watched, of course, the Hong Kong uh, security law being imposed. It has looked at Beijing's behavior across the region, including the tensions with Australia. It sees a much more assertive and, in fact, at times aggressive China. And it worries very much that the proximity of Taiwan to Japanese uh, territory could make that a place where the Japanese would have to worry about not only the fate of Taiwan's defenses, but also the fate of Japanese defenses. So Japan uh, has an election coming up. To what extent has national security been a factor in the domestic politics surrounding the election? Oh, it's been interesting to watch. You know, this is, first of all, we have two elections this fall. What we're watching at the moment is the election for the leadership of the Liberal Democratic Party, which is Japan's conservative party uh, that has ruled in coalition um, now for decades. Um, so you see Mr. Suga decide, the current prime minister of Japan, uh, Yoshihide Suga, has decided not to run for re-election within his party as leader of the party. And has, so the field has opened and there are three candidates declared today. One is Mr. Kishida, Kishida Fumio, who is a former foreign minister of Japan and has largely been seen as as somebody who is very focused on diploma the diplomatic relationship with China, with the United States, and with other Japanese neighbors. There is a, a second candidate, Takaichi Sanai. She is the only female candidate in the in the race. She has a very strong affinity uh, within the right uh, of the conservative party. She's advocated, for example, for constitutional revision. She's advocated, surprisingly, uh, in the last few days to up Japan's defense spending to 2% of GDP and even suggested that Japan should be a far more assertive in the use of offensive capabilities. 
Um, the last person to enter the race is Kono Taro, who is currently uh, responsible for Japan's vaccination effort in response to the COVID-19 crisis. And he is uh, pragmatically very focused on economic, social issues, public health issues, and has not yet made his position on Japanese diplomacy and defense particularly clear. But he has served as foreign minister. He has also served as Japan's defense minister and has taken a fairly strong stance vis-a-vis Japanese neighbors about Japanese security interests. So this is an interesting race. Um, it'll be interesting to watch. There'll be four debates within the membership of the LDP going forward. And so you'll see, I'm sure, defense and foreign policy issues take a, take a significant role in those debates. So as you look to the future, what are some key factors or flashpoints that you're looking at with regards to the U.S.-Japanese relationship? So we've got some diplomacy on the agenda for the remainder of this year, the Quad meeting, the meeting between the leaders of the United States, Japan, Australia, and India is coming up at about the same time uh, as the LDP will be holding its party race, and current Prime Minister Suga will attend that meeting. There is also a two plus two meeting, which is the meeting of our Secretary of State and Defense, as well as their counterparts in Japan, the Ministers of Foreign Affairs and Defense. That meeting will be the second in the Biden administration. They had one in the spring uh, and they very clearly identified that the United States and Japan had a a strong strategic convergence on their focus on China. So I expect that meeting will take place before the end of the calendar year. And and there is largely an expectation that Taiwan and U.S.-Japan cooperation uh, on Taiwan will will be a centerpiece of that meeting as well. So there's a lot of homework to be done both in the regional diplomacy, uh, which is manifest in the Quad, and there are also updates and upgrades in terms of what, what the United States and Japan will do together militarily to deter Beijing's aggression or potential aggression in the region. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer is Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.